Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. I'm not interested in any of that dude. He says it's a, it's a lease. And I'm way overdue for the oil change while I'm here getting the snow tires put on. Do my oil change. That was it. He didn't care. The MPI does take time, especially now with the way they want them done where, I mean, let's be real, for 20 years I just did it with a check mark on a sheet and I handed it in and I didn't I didn't take pictures and, and film videos and all that kind of stuff. Now that process is much longer. Are we should we still be doing an MPI for a customer that's declining work every time we're trying to sell it? Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jada Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. Yeah, so I bought I bought the Vantage mostly to have it for when you would go to the troubleshooter section in, in your MT2500 or your Solus and it would say, you know, test the component this way. And I'll tell you right now, honestly, 100%, I had it. I never used it. Uh, that that Vantage I've had, I think I've used it on one car one time. Oh, it's- I was uh, I was spoiled. I had the, uh, the MT2500 from uh, uh, Master Tech. So I had that and the Sun LS200. I had the big, stupid $25,000 lab scope with the best parade pattern. I will say I was really lucky because I had John Thornton, uh, Roland Trowbridge, Bill Fulton. I had all these guys that I could go to classes with. I went to, I had went through all my papers. I had 180 of them classes that just, I, I learned so much from them guys. And yeah. I didn't realize how big a, a popular man John Thornton was. So I started, you know, going to vision and like all these people are like, you know, John Thornton. I'm like, yeah, I've been to like 15 Thornton classes. Like he used to come and update my mask, uh, uh, tech two and stuff after class. And, you know, we'd sit and talk for hours, man. That guy is super genius. Yeah. It's super genius. It, it just, some people have it in them. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. mean, I, to be a tech, all of us do, but then it's like, you know, it's that saying that there's levels to everything. And I think there's just, 
you know, I think him and Brendan Steckler and oh wow, you know, some of the the names escape me at the moment, but I mean, they're 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 just all uh, you know thinking at a um, Justin Morgan, guys like that, uh, Seth Thorson, their their brains just operate at a way different plane, and I mean, yeah. and, you know, it's I don't know, I want to say it's almost more like an engineering level approach versus just a repair level approach yeah I, i'm a methodical pattern failure like this is what i've seen this is what i know I, i'm an a minus tech at my best i have you know there for a long time yeah i was a head diet guy at all the shops i've been at but when you start hanging around with a thornton and a fulton and you know lender tech guys like yes. yeah there's no i'm not i suck i mean like <laughs> well, not, there's a difference man it's not just suck it's just efficiency you know what i mean like it takes some of us probably i'll say a couple hours to eliminate 90 percent, and those guys eliminate 95 percent in about 15 minutes and then you yeah. just sit back and you're like how did you do that and some of it is critical thinking and then other parts of it is just like is some of it's experience you know like i keep saying all the time you know the the perfect path for this industry as we all age out as we continue to remember what it feels like smells like tastes like you know and 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 go that path so it's like you don't go down a wormhole every time i worked with brilliant techs but they couldn't remember the pattern failure six months later that's you know what I mean? saves me and and yeah because i was the type where i could remember the splice under the carpet five years later you know what i mean like i could remember that splice doing that symptom on that on that vehicle five ten fifteen years later why because it probably kicked my butt to find it you know what i mean or it's one of those things where it's yeah. like what jackass engineer ever thought that this was a smart idea to put this here and it then burns in my brain those guys it's like they don't necessarily even get so much experience i think it's just it it has to be this because it always works like that, and then it, they just roll with. It. You know what I mean? They develop this process. I you know, I rely so much on instinct and, and confidence. That's a big part of it. You know what I mean? It really is. Yeah. If, if you're confident that, well, it, it can't be X, Y, and Z. It can't be because of yeah. whatever reason you have. So I'm going to go with A. And people look at you and it's like, and it's like, how did you know that? Well. Did I 100% know, but I gambled, but I gambled really well. You know? Yeah. An educated guess. So yeah. how did, how did that shop, you know, what's, what's the, you said you were, you, you, you built yourself a pretty good reputation, you know, all referral based, that kind of stuff. What happened? It's actually still going. It's going really well too. We just ran it up for a long time. Wife got sick, father-in-law got sick, got divorced. It was like, I needed more time to run my wife and father-in-law back and forth to doctors. So I started feeling guilty about, you know, being a shop owner and never there and gone all the time. So it was just time to, to try, try something else. I was, I was burnt out too. Not going to lie. We, we did a little three base shop. We did $1.18 million out of it. Super efficient, 127% was the average for the year. Uh, that's how we made our money. You know, super efficient, and our labor rate was still just barely at 100 bucks. 
So wow. luckily so, I took two two management or coaching courses that really helped me out. Like I, I, I preach on the web pages, you know, coach, get a coach, get a coach, only because I know so many shop owners that are like, I, I'm a week out, like I'm done. Like mm-hmm. there was twice I I was you know, next week on Friday, we're shutting the doors. I'm done. I, I We're not doing this no more. And it was simple things, just turn it around. And people get in their own head and don't want to listen. And it's like these guys have seen 50 shops go under, but they've saved 500. So even if you only take two things from it, just take it and run with it. Don't oh, argue I, with them. Can I ask you who your coaches were? Uh, the very first one was management success out of – out of California. I think they're drive now. Okay. That that was, some people didn't like them because of the whole religious thing. I give a crap less. I'm here to make money and learn. Mm -hmm. So I didn't let that bother me. Uh, The second one was ATI. Okay. They were that the first one we doubled ATI. We doubled again. It was amazing. Just, you know, somebody accountable, just, Hey, did you do this? No. Oh crap. Here's why your numbers suck. Yeah. And I had an awesome coach who wasn't afraid to say, hey, stupid, uh, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. Or you need to do this. And then if I didn't do it, it was you are going to do this. Yeah. And that really helped push us to the next level. Well, Everybody's just- scared to raise their labor rate. Everybody's scared. You can't do that in my town. Bull crap. If they say you can, you can. Do you find in your area it was always, because I say it all the time, for around here forever, it seemed like dealerships dictated everything. Dealerships oh, yeah. dictated the labor rate. Dealerships dictated the technician pay in terms of hourly, right? And then everybody that walked out of a dealer got paid less because, well, we're not going to flat rate you. Um, or, you know, if you were paid, uh, if you went to a chain store that was flat rate, it was still less than a dealership. But, you you know, they probably told you, hey, these cars are all out of warranty, so you're going to make more hours. Did it, is it? Did you find that? Like, were you ever at one point higher than the dealer? Oh, yeah. 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 We, we ended up being, uh, people were calling us to set their labor rates. It took years for me to get to that point. But there come a time where, you know what? We're we're three weeks. We're a month out. Uh, they said, raise your labor rates till three people complain. And it's like, we raised it and raised it until nobody complained. But, boy, I was feeling like, oof. It was, I was feeling it hard in my heart. And within us raising the labor rate, like $10, $15 over the dealer, within a year, everybody's caught up with us. And then guess what? We're going to raise ours up again. So we were, we paid the most. Our technicians made more than anybody else. Everybody was hourly, but they turned 50, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week, hourly, but they made real good money, more than the dealerships made. Uh, We, our hourly rate was higher than everybody. Uh, we had, had the first air conditioned shop in the area. So, you know, my guy's Christmas bonuses were like 2,500 bucks, $3,000. They were, they were good bonuses. They were good things, you know, take care of my guys. Yeah. You know? So they had the same guys there forever. So nobody quit. And you just <laughs> sold, you sold this shop. Yep. Yeah. Because sold of the- it walked away, went, did some other things there for a while. Uh, I took a job where I could drive truck and deliver deliver stuff, but I could take off whenever it was. I was an independent contractor. Right. So if I had to run my wife, 
you know, three hours to a doctor's appointment. Father-in-law was doing chemo two times a week. So, you know, for me, family come first. So it was, yep, got to go. Yeah. And it, what did you, when you, when you sold it, did you feel like I, I'd never be able to get back to that? Like, was that a fear of some people when they sell is that I'll never be able to build the second one, you know, back to where the first one was? Actually, not for me, because no. like I said, it was a successful shop. Uh, we had it. It was lean and mean and running good. Uh, it, I actually did try to start one, but I tried to start it back too soon and my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to pull the commitment. You know, my wife was still not right. Uh, family wasn't quite right. So I ran that for a while. And then somebody else just said, Hey, I'd like to buy your business. And it was like, well, I could keep going or yeah, screw it. I'll go out again. So I sold another shop, made some more money. So <laughs> it was one of them ones. If you're not willing to put in 80 hour weeks, starting one up, uh, don't even attempt it. Really? No. Yeah. It, it, there's, so much more. Everybody thinks, well, I turn 60 hours a week. Well, guess what? When you go doing it for yourself, you're the service writer. You're the, you're the plumber. You're the electrician. You're the, the porter. You're everything. You can't turn 60 hours again unless you work 100, 120. So you know, be willing to sacrifice a little. But if you mentioned you earlier, coach. You mentioned earlier you felt guilty sometimes about not being there. Did you ever... Did you ever get to that level where you were the absentee owner or were you no. always very, yeah. Very I, I love it too much. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could ever be an absentee owner. I, I just, I'm a car guy. I love cars, everything about cars. Like I, I'm that freak of nature nut where, you know, when I go on vacation, it's to a car show. I ride power tour. That's, that's a vacation to me. Hang around cars all day long, you yeah. know. If it was just nothing about cars, that's all I do all day long. See, I I used to have such a passion for it, and and people that know me and have known me a long time, it's just like now, a lot of that passion has gone away. Like I would love to be, I would love to be around the the fun cars, but yeah, people that know me and have heard me, like I the enthusiasts sometimes really get on my nerves. You know what I mean? Like I can't stand them, and and it. I guess it comes from because if you spend enough time on the internet, like I do, or too much time on the internet, you see a lot of the time the enthusiasts start to really troll the professionals. Oh, right? yeah. And, I, and that, that always drove me nuts. So it's like, you know, when everybody says, oh, well, uh, you know, I got a 10-second car in the backyard and built it up from nothing and cool story, bro. It doesn't mean that you're you're what I do, right? So yeah. I've always like. You know, when I, when I want to get away on vacation, I don't want to think about cars. It's not that I don't love them. It's just that that type of person always kind of was like, I don't know how much patience I would have to spend around them for a week, you know, on a power tour or even going to, it's the same as me as going to a car show, you know, like even like a Sunday afternoon walk around the, you know, the fairgrounds, look at everybody, you know, wiping on a Corvette with a diaper and all that kind of, like I just. Yeah, I can't, I can't, you know, because it's, it's, there's just so much, some of those cars are not being used first of all. And that's always the thing oh, yeah. is that it's like, I, I don't, your number is your number. Whatever you say it runs is cool, but 
somebody at some point better have seen you run it or you be able to prove that you ran it or else I don't want to hear your mess. I don't want to hear your, your, your bull, your BS, right? I, I'm much more into the stuff that you can look at and you can tell it's been used, right? Like it's like oh, yeah. Jeep guys. I understand Jeep guys much better than I understand drag racers because Jeep guys, you know, not the mall crawlers. I'm talking the guys yeah. like I've got the dents and the bruises and the scratches and, and the tour because <laughs> they're using it. They're using it yeah. for what they want to do. So many of the guys at the car show scene. It's just like it's it's like a wallet show. Look at the look at oh, the yeah. have, you know, that's always where I think I, at some point I lost my passion for for the industry from that side of it. Because the enthusiast just, you know, once we everybody got online and started to be an expert like myself, you know, it was really hard to 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 allow them to be who they were without always challenging them, right? Because you know, you and I, like you you mentioned before we started recording about how I would just you see me tear into some people in in, in groups and yourself and everything else, and it's like. See, for me, I just think like when I'm typing, it's as if we're having this conversation just like this. The, the mannerism and the, and the delivery is all meant to come across just like this. Very friendly, very casual, very like, but it doesn't come across that way, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I don't mean to be to seem like a bully or, you know, chew someone's ass. It's just very blunt and to the point of this. Okay, this is what I think. And then the conversation is supposed to go back to that person. They're supposed to continue to push their, you know, point of view and get their point across. And sometimes, you know, people pull the plug and, and don't. And then it's, I feel like, I think everybody thinks I walk away thinking I won. I don't think I won. <laughs> I, just, I just, I'm like, crap, I don't have anybody to play with. What happened? Like, where did they go? I, I was genuinely, I'm genuinely interested when I'm having these conversations with people that to be engaged, you know, to, to, to hear their points. So, yeah, that's, like, that's what I like because I, I'll be honest, like changing the industry, ASOG, uh, some of the podcasts I got into, they kind of steered me back into the industry a little bit more. Yeah. I love helping other, other shops. I would love to be a, a coach someday. I just think that would be an awesome job. I'm very blunt. I'm very uh, Dutch like, like yeah. tell you like it is and that's it. You might not like it. Like if somebody asks a question, I'll tell you if I did something stupid, I ain't, I ain't afraid. Like, hell yeah, I made a mistake. I made half a million dollar mistakes. But you've you know? got, you've got a resume that shows that you've, you, you come from a place where you've built success multiple times, like you said. Right. So, I mean, it, it's, I can't wrap my head around the, the people that are the genuinely want help, genuinely need help. But when you say to them, okay, you got to do these three things and they go, the first thing out of their mouth is I can't or I won't or why? Well, there's no point in asking why is always a good question, but you've got to think about why asked too many times to somebody that has gone higher up the mountain than you. At some point, you got to abandon the why question and just put trust in that person that they're going to show you the path up that mountain, you know? Because they want you there with them, right? That's the thing. You yeah. genuinely yeah. seem like, you know, you want shops to be successful. I genuinely want technicians to make more money, have better, you know, 
treatment, you know, all that kind of stuff. I genuinely do it. Sometimes when it's like, it seems like I'm calling out owners or I'm calling out techs for being, you know, people think I'm calling them out lazy. I'm not calling you out saying you're lazy. I know you went to work today and worked hard. All of us do. But I want you to think the long game, which is you're, you're sailing by right now on the fact that your body's, you know, not too banged up. You know, you're, you're into a couple of pattern failures and you'll get some money on. But think about where this is going and the fact that you can't turn 20 hours a day anymore. You know, we can't all hump trannies and engines in real fast like we used to. Yeah. We have to develop that next level of being the problem solver, being the diagnostic guy, right? You you want to get to be, people hear me say all the time, you want to get to where you're the go-to guy in your shop. You want to be, if, if in a, it, either you want to be the go-to shop or you want to be the go-to tech within a shop. That's what makes you, uh, I say all the time, make yourself indispensable to where they have to set their labor rate. They have to set the the whole culture within the shop should be set around making sure that key player, you know, whatever you want to call him, captain of the team, whatever, is is happy and is and is productive and and for all intents and purposes a successful individual. If you have that, the morale takes care of itself. You know. And I, I I've been known for a lot of people calling a lot of guys out. And, uh, you know, as I've been involved in the, in the changing the industry and start talking to shop owners, shop owners take me, some of them absolutely love it. And then others absolutely just like, have no use for me. None. You know, I'm sure Lucas gets messages daily. David, I'm sure too. And they're like, why do you let that guy, you know, say what he does and act the way he does? But you know, I'm not trying to say that you're a piece of garbage because you run your shop this way. I'm just trying to say, Hey, I'm speaking for a lot of technicians out there and they may not be coming to you and saying, I feel like this, but I can pretty much guarantee you. They probably feel the way I felt at some point and they're just, they don't know how to say it to you. So I'm going to speak up and say it. Yeah. Don't be surprised if they all just walk out one day. Yeah. You know, when we when we talk about the the oil changes and free MPIs and stuff like that, right? All these different issues that have popped up. People look at me and they go, "I can't believe you're saying that to to owners." And I'm like, "Show show me why, you know, that I'm not yeah. wrong. Show me that I'm I'm wrong when I say that essentially you're using them to market your business." They yeah, go, well, it's lost leaders. Yeah. Right? So and it's a funny, Lucas and I talk about it all the time because it's, there's still a very big, a lot Dutch is a proponent of, you know, having a very cost effective oil change because it drives work in the shop. It drives customers into your shop. And do, like as somebody that you had that guaranteed fix, you know, $150 an hour diagnostic charge way back when, do you, do you use both? In your business approach or now? Yeah. Or, well, now uh, they do, they do things just, di- we do things a little differently. We do like level one through four, like half an hour to two hours, depending on what it is. So we just get an upfront diag fee and that's what it is. Most things like check engine lights, it's an hour. So it's a level two. Uh, if it's something small, it's a level one. But the oil changes are the cheapest, full synthetic, best of the best, and it's thirty nine twenty five out the door. Wow! So we run a we have an oil change dedicated oil change guy. 
I, not the business model I would have picked, but I tell you what, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they did things here that I didn't approve of, but after doing it a while, like all the techs make their own quotes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you'd have told me five years ago that all the techs made their own quotes, I'd have said that's stupid and it gives them an opportunity to, to move on. Mm-hmm. I did my own quotes way back when I started and it gave me the opportunity to open my own shop because I built up my own customers. I called my own customers. I ordered parts. I did everything, uh, but I was hourly. So, you know, mm-hmm. that made it easier for me. And here, all the techs make their own quotes. The service writers don't screw it up. So you don't have everybody wanting to fist fight daily because, oh, you're screwing me out of two hours. And yeah, it, it fixes a lot of problems that you don't realize. Yeah. So. I'm still a I'm still an hourly proponent, uh, but with an hourly shop, you need a good manager. So flat yep. rate can be easily put in any shop, and it kind of runs itself. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think an hourly shop has higher morale, better people. That's just my opinion of every shop I've seen. But I've seen both hourly and flat rate shops run like crap because of poor management. So flat, flat rate can work. I mean, I, I did it for a long period of time. I, I've never done it in a situation where it's multi-makes and multi-models. You know what I mean? Like I did, always did flat rate from a dealer standpoint. So I only had to know one product line, right? And I had to know it really well, but I only had to know one. And, you know, I see flat rate and I see... <laughs> You know, the, it's the, the conversation I don't think is ever going to go away because I think you've got, you know, so many proponents for both sides of it. But I, I will say that like an hourly for an hourly to work, all the process ha- processes have to be absolutely on point. Right. Like you can't you can't have a weak advisor. You can't have a weak tech. You can't have a weak, you know, part system. All of it has to be bang on. I, I never appreciated how critical an advisor role was until I got into, <laughs> into until I got into an hourly shop where the hourly shop paid well. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. see lots of advisors that are substandard, but the whole shop then is paid substandard because they're yeah. not efficient. When we see it's like, okay, they're gonna start paying, you know, forty bucks an hour, that advisor has to be right on point to be able to keep everything so efficient from the parts ordering to the charging enough. You know, it's it's crazy because we could see it in the dealer all the time. It wasn't they'd hire people that had dealerships, but hire advisors that had no advisor training, no advisor experience. Last week they make the joke, but last week they were at Tim Hortons selling coffee, and this week they're working in the service drive. And people laugh, but it's a true story. I I saw it happen several times because they're hiring based on people skills, soft skills. When those people. It can work because if you screw it up, then they don't make any commission, which they may not even necessarily care because if you're paying them, you know, a buck more than they were making selling coffee, what do they care about commission? They're already up money. And if they screw up, the tech doesn't get paid. And when we all kind of stood around as flat rate techs and said, well, that's just part of the whole, you know, give some to get some. I was never about that. You know what I mean? It's like I worked it, but frig sakes, if there was a line on the work order, it had to have labor on it. You know, it didn't matter what it was. It it had to be, there was otherwise there was no point in writing it down. You could not write it down and hand it off because that's a job 
if it wasn't intending to pay labor for it. You know, it, it sounds very simple when you, you break it down and say it, but so many people don't grasp that. You know, I talk to guys that work in dealers still and they're like, well, you know, we, we're, we're forced to do the 300% rule at my dealership and we're forced to do the MPI, but they don't pay us for the MPI. And I'm like, don't do the MPI then. And they're like, what do you mean? We have to do it. I'm like, no, you don't. You don't have to do it. You, you have to address the customer's concern, what it came in for. And if they're not going to put value into the MPI by paying you for it, you don't have to do it. Because it's illegal, first of all, in a lot of states, if, if something is tasked for you as a, as a requirement of your job, that has to be paid for. Now, I understand when we work flat rate, it's a different thing and, and all that kind of jazz. But I mean, for me, when we did our, you know, quote unquote, way back then, like our seasonal package, which is an oil change of tire rotation, you know, a 15, 20 point inspection of a brakes and all that kind of stuff with the tire rotation. We knew what it paid. It paid 0.8. We had the process down. That was it. When I see these guys now and it's like they want me to pull, you know, tires off and do an inspection and the car is there for a software update, I just kind of shake my head and go, what would be the point? That customer, if it's already coming in, it's got a fresh oil change sticker from somewhere else. That customer, you can't tell me, really is all that interested in what you're trying to find on that car, right? I think it's just a situation of they are using it as a liability thing so the customer doesn't drive out and go next week when the brakes start squealing, hey, you never told me about it. My car was just in your shop. Your car was in for a software update on a recall, right? We didn't test drive the car. We didn't look at the brakes. We didn't do any of that. Now it's like all of a sudden this 300% rule is trickled into every car gets an MPI. I don't want to do an MPI if I'm not getting paid for the MPI, right? I understand the whole idea of the dealership has to sell all kinds of work, but I feel the front counter should be really on point with like, okay, you're here for your recall today on your software update. Uh, who's doing your maintenance on your car recently? Like what's been done? This is, it's got 50,000 miles on it. You know, Ford would like to see this done at 50,000 miles. Are you interested in doing that today? Customer says, no, it doesn't matter what the MPI finds. They're already have made it up in their mind that you're not the one for me to do it. But if, if the customer, so that's where I always felt the, the MPI thing works great when the advisor really understands the process, you know, and yeah, then they- I was, uh, I'm a soft sell kind of guy. So when I sold service, it was, Hey, here's what we have to do. Here's what you should do. And I always scheduled people out. Like when they would, Come in for an oil change. I would had a little old school paper book. I had a little post note on there for you know three months down the road. Hey, I'm going to write you down for this day. Uh, you want me to go ahead and get the tranny flush done, and we'll just knock them out one at a time. Mm-hmm. And you sold so much more work off that just pre-selling it for down the road. But a lot of places now are like get it all 300 percent. You know, hammering with everything, and it's like man, nobody nobody asks the questions at the front counter. Like you're saying, nobody asks them, hey, how are you on maintenance? Nobody builds a relationship. It's mm-hmm. in, boom, slam them with a bunch of stuff and push them out the door. Like, yeah, like we had to come customer. back. No. And we had a customer in on Thursday because we don't work Fridays, four day week. And, um, you know, <laughs> I love it. It's I'm awesome. pushing it, but it ain't working. <laughs> I can understand why it doesn't. It makes for a long day. It really does. But we had a customer in on Thursday and it's like we did the whole MPI on his truck. You know, he needed an air filter, cabin filter, uh, brakes have never been serviced. It's a Ford, three years old, you know, 60,000 kilometers on it. 
Uh, it's used on a farm truck. So we're like, it needs, and he's like, I'm not interested in any of that, dude. He says, it's a, it's a lease. Why would I, why would I do anything to it? I'm just here to get my snow tires on and I'm way overdue for the oil change while I'm here getting the snow tires put on, do my oil change. That was it. He didn't care. So I look at that and I struggle with it really hard because it's like the MPI does take time to do, especially now with the way they want them done where, I mean, let's be real for 20 years. I just did it with a check mark on a sheet and I handed it in and I didn't, I didn't take pictures and, and film videos and all that kind of stuff. Now, that process is much longer, you know, like yeah. we're actually trying to get, you know, somebody to shake the wheel, see the tie rod loose, get a video of that, upload it yeah. to the tech metrics so that the customer can see it. It's a wonderful tool, but it slows the process down substantially. And I, I, I struggle still, Jeremy, with the customer. If I immediately get the sense or the feeling or the customer, you know, like we can look in history and there's, you know, a bunch of declined work. Are we, should we still be doing an MPI for a customer that's declining work every time we're trying to sell it? Yeah. Cause I make my guys uh, check the history on them, see Carfax, what's been done. Mm-hmm. And like, if it's going to be a really rough car, I don't have a problem going out telling a customer like, look, the frames rotted on this thing, dump the oil, get it out of here. Don't put any more money in it. But some places are just bam, bam, bam. Yeah. So, and then, a lot of these coaching companies, or some of the coaching companies, I'll say, are all about don't pay your guys for inspections because that's where they make their money. And it's like, come on, man. I I, I struggle with that. Like, our guys still get paid for an inspection, mm-hmm. even though, you know, it's against certain rules and stuff. But, you know, they're spending their time. They're inspecting this thing. And some of these cars are, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Yeah. You know, they're they're rough. And getting a technician who's used to quality to stop, like, hey, dude, when you get to three thousand dollars, stop. Mm-hmm. We'll let them know that they might need more, you know. But I don't know you, me as a tech, and most of my guys, like, when they get going, they don't want to stop halfway through. Like, I didn't find everything, so it's yeah. a fine line. It's hard to hard to hit that line. I str- I struggle with the cabin air filter thing because it's like you know how that goes. Some of them you pull them oh. out, try to take them out, right? But like. Yeah. They want a picture of a cabin air filter that's dirty before we sell it to the customer. And I'm like, okay, it used to look like an accordion and now it looks like a pizza box because like, you know, it, it, all the pleats pulled out of it. I just dumped a bunch of stuff all over their floor, you know, or get, in the blower motor and not vibrates and oh, shakes. Well, that drives you crazy. Cause now you're doing a repair. <laughs> now you're doing yeah. a repair that the customer didn't have, didn't want, and you're doing it to, to restore the car back. Just because you're doing they decline that same cabin air filter. Yeah. So Dude, you got to put it back in there. And I, I'm old and I, I'm sore and it's hard for me to get under a dash anymore and get, get yep. some of them out. And you know how it is. Like you're laying on your back feet on the, you know, floor upside down, head jammed up underneath a blower box, trying to snap that lid back in on the, on the Nissan's are the worst, man. They, they, I just personally say, so it's like most of the time, if I do an MPI, it's like, I don't check off that I check the cabin air filter. I look at it and I pull the engine air filter and I go, if it's dirty, I go, I recommend the engine air and the cabin, you know, and we're trying to, at my shop, we're trying to get on to where it's like, we can get the customers back. We know that we've checked it like three months ago. We replaced it. You don't need to pull them out. They do not need a cabin air filter every three months. No, no. Like, you know, once, twice a year tops, you know, uh, 
it, we're not living in a in a particularly like dense pollen area where I am. Like, I mean, we got snow six months of the year, so it's like you're not getting those. They're not filling up with a lot of stuff now. If customers are negligent and you see it all the time, like the leaf litter on the cowl and stuff like that, pine needles, and, and people are not keeping the car clean. Yeah, I can understand how they get dirty, but I still look at it as like if it doesn't smell, the blower motor's not making noise, and the airflow is still pretty good, it's probably still okay. You know, like yeah, you know, and we I don't recommend it just on mileage. Like, yeah, if you ain't gonna pull it out, just don't even mark it. Just yeah, if you're using tech metric, put it in great. We didn't even look at it. Yeah, like don't tell them it's good, and we didn't even pull it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and people have got to be expecting that now because the quick lube places. They pull them out of every car, every time. And people are like, well, why did they do that? Because they're doing that loss leader oil change at, you know, Jiffy Lube because they need to sell the filter. That's why they do it. That's why, they're, that's why their oil change is priced the way it is. Not that their oil changes are priced any lower here. Our oil oh, changes ours are, are stupid priced. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's $100 for an oil change at our Jiffy Lube. Like, and... Like, how are you going there? Like, you go to the dealership and get it cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're doing it for thirty nine twenty five. Like, oof. yeah. But you call up the dealer and they're like, "Well, we can see it, you know, two weeks from now, right?" Like, because when get you in, whereas Jiffy can like, "Oh yeah, pull right up. We'll get you in right now." You know. So, how do you? What's your? How do you come up with your pricing, Jeremy? To 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 offer convenience, but still make it profitable. Uh, we have an oil change guy, so, you know, he gets less labor than like your typical tech. And what I actually started doing is on the air filters and stuff, like we just mark them up like 10 bucks. I go book time and I knock the labor rate down to like 50 bucks an hour. So we make like $20 on an air filter. That's it. Same with cabin airs because I don't want them going home and changing them. So it's not a loss leader, but it helps the oil change guy get 20, 30, 40, $50 more. So instead of, you know, us making $4 on an oil change, now we can make 25, 30 bucks. So it makes it a little bit easier. We give him an hour to do it. So uh, that and a tire rotation, you know, is like another 25 bucks. So uh, most of the techs hate doing oil changes, you know, not their favorite thing to do. So I, I look at the schedule and I try to schedule cars that haven't been in here before that are a little bit older. That's the cars that go to my, you know, text text. Yeah. Uh, the 2021, 2022. Yeah. That's going to my oil change guy. You know, we just had it in 3000 miles ago. It didn't need nothing. That's the thing that's going to the oil change guy. So it helps to not lose as much. So I'm trying to wow them when they come in. I mean, we have a beautiful showroom. We have like 20 loaner cars, like, Wow. We, we offer a lot of value in our right. stuff. So we are one of the higher shops in the area. And all the little extras we do, we try to, you know, have a higher warranty than anybody around. So the, the oil change gets them in the door. Hopefully they like our service. You know, the porter, everybody here is super nice. So that's how that's how we turn it around and from a loss into something actually good. Yeah. Do you work so, on all makes and models? So you take in just about anything? American Asian, 2000 and up. And no, no, even with that, I have full discretion to turn something away. Uh, it's F350 and down. So okay. we don't work on the big stuff. You know, 
Yeah, we're sticking to what we're good at. So, so no, luckily, here, no uh, we have a, a Ford Master Tech, a GM Master Tech. So I try to split them off. They get only Fords, only GMs as much as they can. Yeah. Oh, that makes us so much money. And then Dude. I got another oh, another A-Tech that's just an absolute god of he'll, – he'll turn 80 to 100 hours every week if you let him. But he's now the shop foreman, so now he's turning like 40. So it's like, ooh. Uh, that hurts. <laughs> so what 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 made that change come up, Jeremy? The, to make, the the Atex to make him foreman like that. You were saying, you know, I was the foreman. Mm-hmm. We opened another shop, so I went to the other store, and then he was he was my a my main Atex here, and I would check things out. I was averaging twenty seven hours, and I would feed him and the other guys. So okay. everybody made a butt ton of hours. And then I went to the other store to help it get up and going. And then when we lost the manager at this store, that position came open. They hired somebody. It didn't work out. It's like, man, they were, it started losing money. And it's like, man, I worked my butt off to build this store up. Like I'll be the manager almost as a, like if nobody else is going to do it, dang it, I'll get it back up. So I came back over as manager and now he's a shop foreman and I don't, I can't figure out a good way to get him back up to turn, you know, 80, 100 hours. Mm-hmm. So we move him to like a salary position and pay him off total shop hours. Yeah. So he's probably a big proponent. Like he's a, probably a big factor in your quality control, right? The foreman. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky because my shop has, I think, probably the best group of techs out of any shop, probably in northern Indiana. It's wow. kind of crazy. I mean, we hired. A tech, A tech. At one time, we had five A techs, and that was it. We didn't even have a, a B tech or a C tech. So we were doing quality control to all of a sudden, and eh, we really don't have to do quality control anymore because we don't really have that issue because all of us are a little older and you yeah. know care about cars, and we don't make the same mistakes. So you're not leaving things loose. You're not leaving fingerprints on anything. So all yeah. the stupid little mistakes that you know you got a QC. We didn't really have that issue, so it's like, well, it's not QC and just hang and bang now. So, so what, what, Jeremy? What do you think about the guys that say, when you're running a shop, you don't need or don't want a shop full of Atex? Like, do you do you follow into that line, or do you do you say that that's a bunch of hogwash? I think you could do it either way. Our labor cost is higher than what you know certain coaches would say is ideal, mm-hmm. but at the same time. You have less comebacks. You have proper diagnosis. You're not giving things away. You're turning more total hours. Uh, shop morale is typically higher. I think it's a better way. Like my shop, I had A techs and one B tech, but my B tech was probably the fastest guy I'd ever seen with no comebacks. Right. Like me and him would race uh, the old E150 vans. I would do one side of the ball joints. He'd do the other side in 15 minutes, man. We were we were banging them out. I mean, we were gods in the suspension world back in the day. So, you know, I hired the best. And I think rather than try to save a few bucks, well, let's get a couple C-Techs in here and have them work under your A-Tech. If you're not careful, you'll bring that A-Tech down. Your A-Tech's not an A-Tech no more. And he gets frustrated. And he's not really training the guy, you know. If you got an hourly shop and you got an A tech with a good C tech, that typically works out better from what I've seen because 
He's not trying to rush through it. He's not just having that kid test drive all his crap, put it up on the hoist, pull the tires off, and then he goes and bangs it out for hours. You know, that's where just a shot full of Atex can make you so much more. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like, comment on, and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise, and I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.